So I joined Obituaries in early 2017. And at that time, the national debate on race was at a rolling boil. And the conversation about gender inequality was just starting to bubble up again. And as a woman of color and as a journalist, I wondered, what could I do to help advance this conversation? In 2017, we elected a president who normalized and gave a voice to racism, to sexism, bigotry, and homophobia. Organizations like Black Lives Matter and movements like Me Too have gained momentum to confront the rampant racism and sexism that exists around us. And the driving force behind these movements have been the people whose voices have not been heard and whose lives have not been valued. Whether it's in our government or in Hollywood or in the mainstream media, one thing is clear, and it's that accurate representation is not possible without adequate diversity. But there is perhaps one thing in life that is not partial to specific demographics, and that's inevitable death. The act of dying itself transcends all prejudices, but the representation of death does not. What does the representation of one's death or legacy say about their life's value in society? One day, um... I noticed we got a lot of emails from readers saying, hey, why don't you have more women and people of color in your obituaries pages? And I thought, yeah, why don't we? As it turned out, only about 20% of our obituaries were on women, which just felt so low. Amy Padnani is an editor on the obituaries desk at the New York Times and creator of Overlooked, a weekly series that tells the stories of remarkable people in history who never got a New York Times obituary. So I had that idea in the back of my mind when one day I was doing research for a woman in the tennis world. We were considering doing her obit and I stumbled on a website talking about Mary Outerbridge. She was credited with introducing tennis to America in 1874. And I thought, how neat is this? One of the biggest sports in America was introduced by a woman. I wonder if she ever got a New York Times obit. Spoiler alert, she did not. I wondered who else we missed, and I began asking some of my colleagues around the building, and it didn't take long before I had a list of a couple of dozen names. I went back to my boss and I said, what if we tell their stories now? And so that's how Overlooked came about. Overlooked has a clear message written across their homepage. Yet who gets remembered and how inherently involves judgment. To look back at the obituary archive can therefore be a stark lesson in how society valued various achievements and achievers. If how we are remembered in death directly reflects our status in life, then the lack of obituaries written for women and minorities throughout history just reaffirms that our society values some lives more than others. Right now in 2019, diversity in, in libraries and archives is a very, very big issue. David Soybert is the curator of the Performing Arts Collection within the Special Collections Department of the University of California, Santa Barbara's library.
I think one of the interesting things about archives is that the historical record, to some degree, is determined by what archives choose to collect and choose to keep. And one of the archivist's most important job is making that decision. You know, if if there's uh, overlooked communities, communities of color, LGBT communities, things like that, who are on the margins and there for, I would say, for decades, those types of materials were just not really collected by mainstream, you know, university archives and historical societies and things like that. Today, you find most libraries are very interested in that. Um, and there's a couple of reasons. I mean, part of it is sort of a social justice type of thing, correcting the historical record. Uh, another big component of that, though, is that what is being taught at universities is changing and archives try to collect things that will be useful to the faculty and um, the students at the university. If marginalized individuals and communities haven't been properly represented in the archive libraries and obituaries, then the historical record that David mentions is in need of some serious correction. So why only now are initiatives being made to represent the deaths of women and minorities in the New York Times? So I went to my boss, the head of Obits, and I asked him and he said, well, our obituaries are from a time when people, women and people of color were not invited to the table to make a difference. In a generation or two, we'll probably see more of them. But I still found this answer to be a little bit unsatisfying. It's unsatisfying because it suggests that women and minorities were not contributing to society pre their recognition. And it's a theory that Amy quickly debunks in the many obituaries published by Overlooked. So there were a lot of surprising names of people we had never done. There was the pioneering journalist Ida B. Wells, the brilliant poet Sylvia Plath, the photographer Diane Arbus. Um, But there were also lesser-known women who had achieved great things. Uh, One of the overlooked obits I wrote was on Mickey Gorman. She won the New York City Marathon in 1976 and 1977, and no American woman would win the New York City Marathon for 40 years. We also wrote about uh, Grandma Gatewood. She was a survivor of 30 years of domestic abuse at the hands of her husband, And one day, he beat her so badly beyond recognition, even breaking a broomstick over her head. She threw flour in his face in response. And when the police came, they arrested her, not him. Then one day, she read an article about how no woman had, no person had ever hiked the Appalachian Trail alone from in its entirety. So she decided to do it. And people learned about this. 67-year-old woman hiking this rough path all on her own, and a camera crew was waiting for her at the finish. They asked her, how how did you survive so rough a place? And they had no idea what she had survived before. Diverse representation is so crucial for the historical record because some of these lesser-known people and accomplishments could easily slip through the cracks of time without proper documentation. Archives are, to me, the most interesting part of libraries these days because so much of everything else is online that the really juicy bits that are unique and rare are in the, in the archive. Because of the movie Green Book, we probably know all know about the kind of the pamphlet book that was published in the 40s and 50s, which allowed black travelers to find essentially safe places to eat and stay in a time of se- segregation and rampant racism. 
And so there is one of those at the UC Santa Barbara Library, which is very interesting. They're rare. But there's another item that came in, which I've never seen before, and I don't think has gotten the same sort of attention, but it's a blue book, which was directed at gay and lesbian travelers. And I think it's probably from the late 50s or early 60s, so it's pretty early, that allowed gay and lesbian travelers to find towns or motels or or bars and restaurants that were, um, uh, I don't know that I would say queer-friendly, but, you know, similar to the Negro Motorist Green Book. And I thought that was very interesting, and I don't know that I've ever seen any discussion of that particular um, that item, but that's the kind of thing that if it's, if it's not in a, a archive or library where it's public accessible to researchers, is sort of invisible. So how can we make sure people like Grandma Gatewood and archives like the Blue Book won't stay invisible? What are the next steps to ensuring a correction of the historical record? Originally, if you recall, I wanted to address the issue of our gender imbalance in our daily report. Overlooked is great, but it's a retrospective history project. It still doesn't fulfill me in, in fixing the problem. So then I worked with a programmer here on our games team for something called Maker Week. And we built something called a diversity analysis tool, where it just automatically counts every month how many obits are in women and how many are in men. And so I asked him to program an algorithm with a goal that we want 30% of our obits to be on women from the one year that Overlook launched, so from March of 2018 to March of 2019. And I believe we did it. I have to double check, but I'm pretty sure we got to 33%, which is something we've never done before. You know, it's, it's, it's hard to do, um, and it takes a long time. I mean, it's one thing to talk about your, diversifying your collections or bringing in collections from unrepresented groups, but what I found in working in archives that bringing in collections is about trust and it's about relationships, you know, because the diversity of staff, I think, is what leads to diversity of collections. So you have to have staff that are sensitive. You have to build those relationships. You just can't sort of put an ad in the paper and say, looking for gay and lesbian or African-American collections because it won't work. But it's about talking to people in the community, and that, and that takes effort, you know. Special thanks to Amy Padnani from the New York Times and to David Soybert from the Special Collections Library in Santa Barbara, California. Music by Teo Antrim and Paul Mercurio, and archive recordings sampled from the UCSB Cylinder Audio Archive. This is Eden Turner for WNSR Radio.